Blog Talk Radio. Like always, 
the way we get started with our party is to introduce you to our political panelists and analysts for today's program. We first will bring in Brother Haki, and we'd like to welcome him to Africa on the Moon. Brother Haki, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Uh, <clears throat> Brother Africa, thanks for having me. <clears throat> my name is Haki Kamafi Mishoki. Currently with African Awareness, and of course, you know my thing is all about institution building. And I got to tell you, Brother Africa, one of the reasons I think institution building is so important, this whole, you know, so uh, coronavirus uh, outbreak. Uh, one of the things that we keep in mind when we talk about this coronavirus outbreak is that there's a tremendous amount of money being spent on bio biowarfare uh, research. Uh, one of the things that President Obama did when he was in, in office, he reduced those expenditures. Reduced those expenditures. Uh, but now that the Orange Minister is in power, he actually um, increased expenditures for uh, for biowarfare. And I'll tell you, I, I read a book uh, sometimes back by Judah Miller entitled uh, Germs, and it talked about, in, in part, about Walter Bassoon, the South African cardiologist, in conjunction with the CIA, was responsible for creating Ebola, SARS, and HIV recomb- recombinant. Now, HIV recombinant is simply the predecessor to, to AIDS. Now, interesting, though, you know, when, when you think about terms of, you know, the biowarfare in terms of implications, when we go back to the origins of the United States, and we look at smallpox, for example, we remember situations where the colonialists here in America infected blankets with smallpox and gave it to the Indians, thereby wiping out large numbers of their population almost to extinction. Remember the Tuskegee experiments in which African men were used for experiments to see the impact of syphilis on the human body. Or we think about uh, in the book um, Acres of Skin, where they talk about the experimentation using all kinds of viruses on black prisoners in the United States. So clearly there's a lot of history in terms of use in terms of biowarfare in terms of maintaining hegemony. I think unless it's, uh, I think it's something that we have to be seriously concerned about, you know, and, and when we talk about coronavirus in terms of all its implications. Now, one of the things that Brother Africa, you know, um, you know, back in the day when, they, when AIDS first came about, they talked a lot about, you know, AIDS being a manifestation of, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, you know, African um, habits, uh, being a manifestation of, of green monkeys' uh, interaction with human beings, uh, being a result of homosexuals in America, you know, in terms of their deviant lifestyles, being responsible for the uh, spread of AIDS. Well, and what they did mention was that back in the 80s when the scientists looked at the AIDS virus <clears throat> under an electron microscope, what they found <clears throat> was that that virus was not a mutation. In fact, the virus was very, very, <clears throat> very, very uh, symmetrical in terms of its, its design. So the scientists knew from the way it was designed that it wasn't a result of mutation, that in fact it was built in a laboratory. And, of course, the media never told the people that when the scientists found out that this was a result of, uh, of, of, uh, a, you know, of work in a laboratory, um, that information was never conveyed to the masses of people in terms of, in terms of that strategy. But nonetheless, when we talk about the oversaw, devastating impact of AIDS on people, uh, there's no question that AIDS had a devastating impact. But, 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 again, keep in mind that this was all manufactured. And so when we talk about the coronavirus, we've got to be very, very concerned about in terms of potential in terms of manufacturing this particular virus. Now, another thing, Brother Africa, you know, recently um, the, uh, the, fr- the French and Chinese scientists discovered something that's very, very interesting. Uh, they talked about the fact that this coronavirus, <clears throat> which is a very broad definition in terms of, you know, viruses. But anyway, they talked about the fact that, you know, like SARS, 
um, the coronavirus uh, contain 80% of the DNA from SARS. I find that very, very interesting. Also, you talk about the fact that this particular gene pertaining to the SARS virus is also linked to HIV and Ebola viruses. I find that very, 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 very interesting, uh, particularly when you go back and you look at terms of Walter Bassoon's work in terms of HIV and Ebola and SARS, then you sort of see a, a correlation or a sort of pattern that emerges in terms of this kind of uh, use of bio-warfare bio for the sole purpose of maintaining uh, the hegemony throughout the world. All right, so now one of the things I got to say that, you know, got me um, somewhat puzzled is that the fact that, you know, when you talk about the origin of these, these viruses, one of the things that often we're, to- we're given all kinds of reasons in terms of origin, you know, origin of these viruses. Uh, but what we're not told is that a lot of times when we talk about the origin of these viruses, they have a very negative connotation, particularly when it comes to people of color around the world. And so if you talk about something like SARS, and then it's, it's not presented as quite as ominous as something like Ebola or coronavirus or, or HIV or AIDS. So it's clear to me that's the political perspective parameters in terms of, you know, how these diseases or how these viruses, you know, are, are presented to the public. So clearly in terms of the motivation, in terms of how these diseases are described. Now, one thing recently in, in North Carolina, in North uh, North, excuse me, North California, a young woman was diagnosed with uh, cor, cor, coronavirus. And interestingly enough, the young lady never left North, North California. Uh, she never been outside of the country. She never left North, North California. But nonetheless, she came down with AIDS. So for me, I find that very, very extraordinary given the fact that, you know, that she never left North, Northern California. But she, come, she came down with uh, coronavirus. So it seems to me that something is amiss here. And I think to a large extent, uh, you have to reason that if, in fact, if, if someone who's never been outside the country, who's never been, in, been around anybody who's infected with coronavirus, but she herself comes down with it, then clearly you've got to suspect uh, at the very minimum that the, those, those, those agents that lend themselves to, the, to that infection may ex- already exist right here in America and throughout the world. Uh, and um, and I say all this to say, brother, in terms of I'm going to close with this, but I think it's important that when we talk about, it's important when we understand the politics of biowarfare, that we understand it is a distraction. Nonetheless, it does do a very good job in terms of eliminating lots and lots of people from the planet, but nonetheless, it's a distraction nonetheless. And so, therefore, we cannot get bogged down in these distractions. We need institutions in that community in terms of doing what we have to do for the future and not get bogged down because right now what happens is that this whole a discussion around coronavirus is really terrifying in lots and lots of people. And because they're terrified, the possibility in terms of actually working together becomes less. And so, therefore, we cannot allow ourselves to be deceived by this, this deception and understand that these kind of tactics are going to be utilized, you know, um, as you know, imperialists seek to uh, regain some hegemony in, in the world. And so we understand that these kind of things are going to happen uh, uh, from here on out. As a matter of fact, for the last, last 10 years, there have been five pandemics somewhere in the world. And so it's very, very interesting, you know, that in just in the last 10 years, that there's been proliferation of these kind of viruses. So clearly we understand that they're going to do what they got to do in terms of maintaining control, maintaining their hegemony. But we have to understand that we have an obligation, to, not only to our children, but we have an obligation to humanity to stand up and do that which we need to be done 
in terms of the empowerment of our people, not only the empowerment of all humanity. So I encourage people to definitely get about the business of building those institutions and not be bogged down with this nonsense about, you know, the the the, the threat or potential threat of, of coronavirus because uh, it is. It does nothing in terms of helping us do what we have to do in terms of, you know, uh, moving forward. So I encourage people, you know, to to continue to build those institutions because they're so indispensable to our future. You know, Brother Hackey, just to add to your point, just to give people something to think about, is, you know, based on all that you have said, and just to add to your point, we also can't forget about the history of eugenics. We can't forget about... Um, Via Belinda Gates, they made it publicly that they want to uh, help a, illuminate a large sums of the populations worldwide, and they had a certain date with so many millions and billions to die. So when you look at these viruses that are being created, also at the same time, I found it really interesting. They say it comes out of China, but at the same time, isn't this the year when they're supposed to have the Olympics in China? And then we also use things to destabilize. Um, to stabilize countries, to undermine their economic prosperity in terms of the kind of investment that it costs to take on these kind of large events. When countries are not favorable to lacking in the West and to the U.S., all kinds of things, strange things begin to happen. So um, in terms of the issues that you have laid out, it, it does give you a sense of, of, of trying to wonder how we've been down this path before, we've seen it before where, you know, maybe possibly the U.S. intelligence is, is creating these things to to destabilize and uh, gain a certain economic, you know, advantage, you know, over certain industries of people, countries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it seems like it, ha- it has a history. We've seen the story before, and I agree with you, Brother Hakeem. But we just thought yeah, uh, I just think one of the something about But go ahead, Brother Hakeem, go ahead. One, one thing real quickly. I think it's achieving its desired impact. Now, one thing I think the, the imperialists want to do is they want to uh, they want to not only just destabilize China to the extent that they can destabilize China, but we're going to make damn sure in 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 in, in destroying the supply chain, you know, in terms of trade, it undermines China's economy. So ultimately, they're hoping that somehow they can just totally undermine China's economy for the sole purpose of corrupting the Chinese officials to adopt a more capitalist line in terms of how they do business around the world. So I think that to some extent that strategy is working uh, because they're, they're – they're, but keep in mind, while they wreck the Chinese economy, they're also wrecking the U.S. economy, but they don't care about the U.S. economy because for them, as long as the ruling, ruling class got everything they need, they don't give a damn about everybody else. And so therefore, even if the U.S. economy is in decline as a result of the coronavirus, they don't care. The larger objective in terms of penalizing, at least in their mind, China – it's something that they are, in fact, achieving, and so therefore we can anticipate, you know, uh, more of these kind of bio-weapon, bio-warfare kind of attacks, you know, uh, against China for the purpose in terms of destabilizing China and also uh, weakening China, you know, from an economic point of view. So clearly uh, the strategy is working, and so, um, you know, we just got to just watch it very, very closely. Panelists, uh, anyway, can y'all help me out? What's the name of that spread cane people use sometimes to claim to get rid of germs and stuff? People use all the time to, to to spray when people you know when people cough and whatever you want to make sure you know things is is Lysol. 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 Yeah, Lysol. Is, is Lysol? Uh, give another. Is it another? Uh, is it Lysol? One the spray cans. Um, um, someone called to my attention to say if you look on the back of it, 
they had the word they had coronavirus on it. Their position was they already always been out here. It's not nothing new. And if you look at something oh, at that spray can, it had the coronavirus on it. And I find that interesting. So anyway, let's give people something to think about. The games are being played. Uh, thank you, Brother Hacky. Next we'll go to Brother Afton. Brother Afton, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Oh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Father Brother Anthony, we now bring Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the panelists. Um, it's good to be here. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you once again, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. Thank you, Brother Moses. Father, Brother Moses, we have Brother Maurice. Brother Maurice, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Good evening, brothers. Revolutionary greetings to, to Brother Africa and my fellow, fellow comrades on this panel. Thank you so much again for having me here on the first day of March. Um, I'm, I'm thankful to be a part of, uh, of this um, powerful panel. My name is Brother Maurice. I'm a member of the Pan-African Revolutionary Socialist Party. I'm a supporter of the AA All Africans People Revolutionary Party, um, and I'm and, and thankful and I'm thankful for being here. But I, I, if I can, with, with your permission, I want to make a, a brief comment, response, or in relation to Brothers Hackey, uh presentation or. Um, the topic, specifically the topic of the coronavirus, if I may. Yes, go ahead, brother. The mic is yours. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Uh, we're brief. Um, I want to highlight and bring to the attention of a documentary. Um, the documentary is titled "Cold Case Hammerskull." It's about the assassination of the United Nations representative, Dag Hammerskull, who had a lot to do with. Um, who, who, well, I would say he had a lot of he had a va- involvement with the um, assassination of uh, Patrice Lumumba in the Congo. But on this documentary, this documentary came out last year sometime, 2019, um, and it came out through the Sundance Film Festival. On this documentary, um, they highlighted an organization um, of Samir, S-A-M-I-R. And this organization, the South African Institute for, Mar- for Maritime Research, was led by Chief Max Maxwell, who was not a doctor, but they operated a number of medical clinics and villages in South Africa. And they operated under the order of the CIA and the MI6. And this is a documentary. This is what it highlighted. They was aligned to the um, apartheid. They wanted to continue apartheid. They developed a virus by the name of AIDS. And spread it among, and, and, you know, and that's what spread in South um, Africa. And this was developed in the late 70s, 80s, around the time when you had 
you know, Michael Jackson thing, you know, all of that, all of that uh, propaganda around AIDS or whatever. But on this documentary, it highlights it highlights that 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 this organization, the South African Institute for Maritime Research, Keith Maxwell, CIA, MI6, or or the uh, Secret Intelligence Service of London, United Kingdom, they developed this virus called AIDS to kill off Africans, so white, so the Europeans in South African, uh, in South Africa, can um, achieve being the majority and not the minority in South Africa. And that, and that blew me away. But I urge the listeners and, and my fellow comrades on the panel, if you have not seen that documentary, please see that documentary because you will understand clearly more of, in relation to what Brother Hackey stated earlier about the, you know, about this, um, and I'm going to say what it is about this tactic of coronavirus. Because you got to also keep in mind I don't know if it was stated. I can't remember if it was stated just now, but you got to keep in mind that it's kind of funny uh, that this virus come up, pops up in China when when uh, the United States of America want to pull back African forces on the continent. It's kind of kind of weird to me, but that's that's that's, that's all I had. That's all that's all I wanted to um, to bring attention to. And I would say this also: we cannot we can't be too surprised. Like, oh wow, this is nothing new. They did it with smallpox. Smallpox vaccine against the Native America with Native Americans, so this is nothing new. Same tricks as usual. Thank you. And Brother Maurice, you know they do also have a plan. The West is projecting that they have this plan where they want Africa to become a continent with no people. Then how do you make that happen? And what is that is all about? So you know people got to begin to learn how to connect these dots again through history as a tool to guide their thinking and their analysis of trying to understand today's world. So anyway, panelists, job well done. What we're going to do to our listening audience, we'd like for you to uh, feel free to and participate by calling in at 323-679-0841. What we're going to do, after we go on our station break, we're going to talk about the first part of the program, as always, what's going on in our world and, and, and the community, and then we're going to follow it up as we discuss today's theme, which is part two, not free, What's happening to us? So right now we can take a station break, and when we come back, we're gonna talk a little bit about what's going on in our world community with our panelists and analysts for today's program. We'll be right back. You listen to Africa on the Moon.
would like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move, and we would like to remind you, don't you become a Buffalo soldier. Yes, we were fighting for the arrival and still fighting for our survival. Africans have been displaced from their home from all over the world, but that's no problem because we're going to reunite back, and we have free our motherland, our motherland Africa, and we're going to do this by organization and providing you revolutionary information. Right now, we welcome you back to Africa on the Move. To our listening audience, if you want to participate in this segment on what's going on in your world and the community, feel free to share that with us by calling in at 323-679-0841. At this point in time, we'll go back to our panelists and analysts we ask each one of them what's going on in that world and the community. We'll start out with you, Brother Haki. Tell us what's going on in your world and the community, Brother Haki. Yeah, a couple of things. First, African awareness be taking a trip to Cuba. This trip takes place July 24th to July 31st. And we encourage people to go first and see for themselves exactly why Cuba is such a great place. I think at some point we had to begin to ask ourselves, why is such a small island with maybe 11, 12 million people? Why subjected to such a political abuse, economic abuse, you know, by the uh, United States? What is it that the Cubans know that's a implicit threat to the United States? Well, perhaps it has a lot to do with the fact that Cuba is more humane, that Cuba's position is that, you know, you want to create a system which ensures that the every individual, rises and falls based on his or her abilities and that there are no superficial structures in place to undermine one's ability in terms of being all they can be. So maybe that's an implicit threat. So maybe they don't want you to know that there's a different way in which human beings can be organized. So so Cuba does a very good job in terms of organizing a society around the human dimension. So we need people to come to Cuba firsthand, see for yourself, talk to the Cubans, Find out what, what will make with Cuba such a great place and understand that a lot of things that Cubans are doing, we can also use right here in America in terms of empowering our communities. So we encourage people to go firsthand and see for themselves. Now, for more information, please call us, 804-549-7492 or area code 202-714-9435 or email us at African Awareness Association, all one word, number two, at gmail.com. And my 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 statement is this, Brother Africa. On term, you know, one of the things, you know, to, to what extent do we, we do we continue to place so much value on the on voting? It seems to me, after numerous uh, uh, tricks employed, you know, by those positions of power to deny us the right to vote, why do we spend so much time, you know, pursuing this right to vote? Uh, it seems to me that we could better use this energy in terms of uh, doing those kind of things, you know, to empower ourselves in terms of moving forward. But we seem to not understand that, you know, that um, empowerment cannot be given to you. Some, to you. you have to fight for that. And the mere fact that we continue to um, uh, legitimize the system which disempowers raises some serious questions in terms of do we really understand the nature of what's going on in society. I suspect we don't. And I say that because there's a recently – in uh, Pleasant Pleasant Grove, Alabama, they have a voting a, 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 a at large voting system, right? And what the system does is, you know, it systematically eliminates the the, the African vote. So, in other words, even though the city is sixty percent African, what happens is that uh, because it's at large and because all the districts votes for the for the candidates 
five of them in, in particular, uh, the, the African vote gets negated. And so, therefore, as opposed to a system where districts vote for your, for your representative, it doesn't work like that. And the at-large system is, 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 is countywide. And so Africans don't stand a chance, even though they represent a majority in terms of, in terms of the population. Now, this, this, this uh, at-large um, voting um, situation was challenged legally, and the courts found that it violated the Voting Rights Act. But the representatives of Pleasant Grove, Alabama, did something that was extraordinary. As opposed to admitting that what they were doing was discriminatory, what they did, they implemented a policy of cumulative voting. In other words, now what happens is that everybody in that town gets five votes. But the problem with that is that, one, the exile system is still in place. Secondly, the most organized communities will continue to prevail in terms of electing the people they want to elect. So if the African vote is split, it means that Africans won't get, in, get into the city council. Uh, lastly, uh, when you talk about an at-large system, there's clearly there's grounds in terms of uh, for, for vote rigging. And so therefore, so the question is, what have you really achieved in terms of your, in terms of your desire you know, to, to exercise your right to vote? I maintain you you haven't you haven't won anything. So, but that's that's my position. And also one other thing, brother Africa, and I, I conclude with that. Um, you know, one of the things is that you know if if you come to the realization, you know that voting is is not it, or if what you want is not representative in terms of the people who are elected to office, then doesn't make more sense if you're in a majority to simply say, listen, those kind of things we need to turn some power on our young people. Those kind of things we need to do to intellectually enrich our young people. Those kind of things we, we need to do in terms of um in terms of building for ourselves. Why don't we implement those kinds of things at, you know, why why those things don't, don't become a priority? Why is this uh, this fixation on voting the priority? Even though voting doesn't doesn't uh, ensure, you know, any any meaningful results. So it seems to me that at some point we have to wake up and realize you know that uh, that's fine if, if you want to vote. And that's fine that you that you think that as a citizen you have a right or you should have a right in terms of uh, expressing you know your 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 will you know through politics. Well, sometimes it just doesn't work that way. And I think at some point we got to begin to ask yourself: Is there a different way in terms of doing things? Different way to organize society in terms of empowering our young people, in terms of empowering ourselves. So I I close with that, brother Africa, with the question: You know, uh, what's going on here? Well, Brother Hockey, I hear you. I just know that um, Africans in this country had a chance to put an African in position, a so-called president, and we saw how policy he was as it relates to meeting our interests. So if they haven't done enough, I don't know what will, but we'll move on. Brother Afton, come and talk to us. What's going on in your world in the community? Okay. Um, uh, let's see, several things. Uh, to start off with, uh, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, and the National Council of Arab Americans are organizing African Liberation Day slash Not by Palestine Day 2020 under the banner Not Yet Uhuru, Not Yet Freedom, Not Yet Liberation, in combat with women's suppression, neocolonialism, Zionism, and settler colonialism worldwide. Our ALD, not by Palestine protest and celebration, is being organized 
in Lafayette Park in Washington, D.C., in front of the White House. If if 3,000 or more people attend, we will march to the ellipse. The ellipse is behind the White House. ALD Palestine Day convenes at 10 a.m. Saturday, May 23rd, 2020, and ends at 6 p.m. And for more information, please visit our website at www.a-aprp-gc.org or call us at 202-248-4896 for more information. Also, uh, let's see, in terms of... um, you know the uh uh the uh, coronavirus uh you know being a distraction as uh Haki correctly pointed out is true because while that's going on there are all kind of, uh designers in uh, occupied Palestine are continuing to commit uh let's say numerous atrocities against uh, the Palestinian people in order to uh in order to uh, to drive uh, uh, the remaining Palestinians out of Palestine, and uh, that is g- getting very little attention in the uh, in, in the media inside the U.S. Also, uh, let's see. Uh, in terms of um, this issue of um, you know regarding voting. I think a lot of Africans misunderstand the fact that voting is a means to win and not an end of itself. The end in of itself is political empowerment. And uh, we've been uh, 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 tied to that method for nearly 150 years. And it hasn't gotten, uh, and it's gotten the same result, nothing. And uh, it seems like we need to be about the work of organizing ourselves to gain uh, in order to obtain political power. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Following Brother Anthony, we now bring in Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Oh, this has been an interesting period of time since we last talked. Um the situation with this virus, this this uh, needed for immunization, it's, we need an immunization. That that's the critical thing for this coronavirus. We need some kind of immunization. I'm hoping the Chinese the scientific mindsets will get get focus on it and come up with some kind of immunization. Meanwhile. Of course, uh, the people who want to be in the White House are, have been focusing their, their energy on, on the black boat. It's very interesting. They've really geared their advertising to pulling out and using all the demagoguery and, uh, and as if they've been on the, on the, in the struggle for black lives and and uh and prosperity for black people uh after they've done so much for us it's interesting i don't know i'll just leave it right there thank you thank you brother moses and we now we're bringing 
Brother Maurice, Brother Maurice, what's going on in your world in the community? Yes, a couple of things. I just want to kind of backtrack because I, I felt like I didn't make my um, I missed I missed the point uh, what I was trying to make earlier about um, uh, United States pulling back forces on the continent of Afrikan, um forces bases, and I just was, I was trying to make the point that they are pulling those forces back to focus more on on China on the uh, Asian side of the world. So that's what I was trying to make earlier. I wasn't sure if I made that. I made that clear or not. Um, but as for what's going on in my world, I want to uh, give Brother Lee a shout-out on yesterday's presentation. The presentation was, was needed to hear by Africans, and certainly, um, not, not to be negative, but certainly in that room, because we, we're talking about voting. But also, Africans need to understand that running for office is also is not the answer. Now, uh, it was a couple comments yesterday uh, in response, you know, I mean, as, as uh, you know, it was, it was a couple of comments. Let me get my, gather my thoughts. It was a couple of comments made last night at the last night event. And the event was a, it was an African fashion and food program. And um, they, they was, have, they was, it was, it was a couple of speakers talking about organizing from top bottom or, or trying to get, trying to get some changes made on the continent from top. Bottom. You cannot. Uh, it would not. I would say this. You. Would, it, would, it would not be wise if you're thinking as a, a revolutionary, and if you're thinking for the masses of people, the masses of Africans. It would not be wise to um, try to work with work from the top um, to make changes. As 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 a study of Pan Africanism, we know that's a it's a farce. It's, it's not. <laughs> it's, it's, it's um. It's not. That's not the right solution. You have to work among. You have to make changes from the from the bottom up. You can't make changes from the from the top to the bottom. A, a lot of people talking about they had um, they have contacts or they have uh, relationships with with mayors or with uh, uh, people who are in um, people who are in political positions locally or state or federal, trying to work within the um, the government. You're not going to make any changes. You're going to get the same reforms that we are always be given. And many times on this show, reforms we spoke about reforms and, and we, we highlighted that reforms is not that is not the answer. You have to have a revolutionary mindset um, in order to make changes and real change and real uh, freedom for Africans and for the masses of, of oppressed people around the world. Brother Lee made that clear last night. Um, that's why I want to make make that big shout out. Not to be too long with it on that topic, but I just wanted to point that critique out from last night's event. I'm pretty sure, Brother Lee, <laughs> you probably uh, noticed noticed uh, noticed that. Um, but not to knock anybody. I just want to make that clear. Like you have to work among the people, and and running for office uh, is not the answer. Either. I'm going to run for office. Organize. I would say this. Thinking about running running for office, you need a party in order to run for office. You just can't say. Um, or you, you know, if you're if you're, if you're a revolutionary minded and you want to try to make changes on a local level, you have to have a uh, a political party. Um, and in this sense, we are past the point of trying to um, trying to. I think Bobby, Bobby Rush is a good example. He was part of a revolutionary political party, the Black Panther Party, and then he integrated into the bourgeois political system of America, thinking that he was going to start a revolution or make some changes. You cannot make changes within the bourgeois, and I and I honestly, as a political science student myself, I had to come to that <laughs> come to that clarification that you cannot you 
cannot uh, make uh, make um, any changes for our people. Um, she can make reforms, but she can't make no real revolution. You can't make some real changes to me in a political in, in, in the bourgeois political system. Uh, I just wanted to make that point clear. Now, the second thing that's going on in my world is the second annual Kwame and Kuma um, conference. And the theme of the conference is um, observing education and youth from a pan-Africanist and from a Kuma's perspective. Um, we're going to try to have some youth in the community to speak about the work they're doing for Africans in the high school, in, 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 um, in the Thomasdale High School in uh, Chester, Virginia. Um, we're going to have other organizations there, AAPRP. We're going to have a, trying to have a member from RNA, Republic uh, of New Africa, to come and speak. And we're also going to be having a, a, a free uh, a free viewing, a free presentation of the documentary titled Footprints of Pan-Africanism. Um, it's going to take place Saturday, April 4th, April 4th, a month, kind of a month, a couple of days from now. Um, it's going to be from 10 to 7 that day, 10 a.m. to 7 o'clock p.m., and we're still working on We're going to have a location confirmed uh, by the end of this week. Stay tuned to that, and uh, thank you. Thank you, Brother Lee. Thank you. Okay, panelists, let's continue discussion on some of the issues that you have raised. Brother Haki, I'd like for you to speak to it. I know, um, you know, you can add something to this issue of this question of why we continue to vote continue to vote, you know, why there's such an uh, interest on that. And, you know, I'm just wondering, still some may say it may be too early, too early to make a, a, a analysis, but I think we can make some kind of analysis in terms of what do we, what have we gained or what can we draw from looking at what took place when Barack Obama was 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 controlling this particular administration? and um, institution of presidency of the United States government. What can African people draw from that? Give me some good and some negative, if any. Well, I, I got to tell you, Brother Africa, in the in 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 sense that you talk about what good came from his presidency, none, none. The reality is that, you know, uh, Barack Obama's an establishment politician, and he understands that. So he, underst- he understands <coughs> His interest lies with those who are powerful. His interest doesn't lie with the masses of people. In fact, one of, one of the biggest uh, fears um, demonstrated by Barack Obama is to even confirm that racism, that oppression, systematic oppression, exists in society. Remember the situation where the cop uh, beat up the, uh, the Harvard professor in front of his own home? And Obama made the statement that that was dumb because that was just, just plain dumb because it would take you only a couple of minutes to, to establish that that is the man's home. But yeah, once the media, once the once the right wing came at him, he capitulated. He said, thought, you know, he just totally abandoned that. So clearly, he understood. He understood that in terms of, you know, uh, his his real interest, his interest lies with those who are positions of power, because he understands that when he leaves office, there's the opportunity to make lots and lots of money. But you have to play by the rules of the game. Those rules of the game uh, mitigates against any possibility in terms of, you know, articulating the interests and needs of the masses of people, particularly African people in the society. So the kind of systematic oppression, the kind of um, uh, uh, police uh, abuse inflicted upon African people didn't change when I older under, under the banner of Barack Obama. And that's to be expected. So one of the things that when we talk about symbolism, we talk about electing Barack Obama, and I mean, that was good in terms of symbolism because it shows the little African children that, you know, 
there is that possibility that you want to aspire to the highest office in the land that is achievable. That's fine. But what we don't teach our, uh, our children is that the, the, the price incurred when you when you play by rules of the game in terms of your inability to actually impact favorably on the masses of folks. And so this is so when we talk about the kind of deception that's very much part of the political process, Barack Obama sort of epitomized the kind of de- deception that's very much part of the political process. And one of the things is that when we talk about um, uh, the orange minutes, we talk about in terms of you know the vitriol and uh, the kind of hatred he expressed toward you know people of color. Well, clearly uh, the kind of vitriol that he expressed, Barack Obama in a strange kind of way articulated the same kind of vitriol in terms of his unwillingness to acknowledge not only the systematic oppression of African people, but also his 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 his, his policies which adversely impacted, negatively impacted on masses of African people. And for instance, when we talk about in terms of proliferation of weaponry, military hard weaponry, you know, from the federal government, you know, to to the to the cities to the cities and states, Barack Obama was was ahead of his time in terms of in terms of um, you know uh, uh, supporting that kind of move. Uh, when we talk about in terms of the the exploitation in terms of in terms of Africa, in terms of fundamentally addressing these 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 international structures. That mitigate against Africa, Africa's, you know, uh, progress. Barack Obama was very silent on that. He wouldn't talk about that. In fact, when he visited Africa, the only thing he would talk about, he would talk about the fact that we need more gay rights in Africa. No disrespect. I mean, that's fine. Uh, but more importantly, we need people to have a right to exist. And clearly, given the, the, the kind of policies that the West employ against Africa, in terms of Africa's right to exist, is fundamentally in, in question. So clearly, Barack Obama, you know, um, did nothing in terms of the aspirations of the African people. Other than visibility, there was nothing that he that he did concretely that benefited the African people. And so when you talk about what are the overall benefits in terms of voting, the reality is none. But as I think about it, for those people in the African community who run for offices, if their politics are not, are not mainstream, they're not going to be elected anyway. They're certainly not going to be financed by the powerful. Uh, the masses of people tend to frown upon those politicians who are revolutionary, and they're more in, inclined to vote for those people who are mainstream. But the irony is that those people who are mainstream don't give a damn about the interests of the masses of people. They're concerned about their, their own pocketbook. And so it's clearly, you know, voting is not the solution to our, to our problems. And I think at some point, maybe if not in our generation, the younger generation will, will begin to understand that you, in terms of self-empowerment, that's not going to include the, the, the ballot. It's, it's going to include it's going to include the, the serious kind of work that you do on the grassroots level, in terms of you know fighting, having these struggles with people around what is your best interest and why you got to do certain things in terms of achieving those things which are in your self-interest. So to answer your question, brother Africa, uh, there were nothing good in terms of Barack Obama candidacy, but on uh, but as far as everything bad, was a lot of that. Brother Anthony, let's continue down this road. I would just like for you to speak to looking at the historical realities of where African people would lock out the so-called political process inside the U.S., and then they were given the opportunity to to participate so-called within the process, which means we went from no senators and congressmen to many senators and congressmen, but yet Today we have more people who are elected officials on the national, local, and regional level. But at the same time, the economic conditions of African people today is worse all today than it was 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago. How do you explain that phenomenon? What do we learn from that process and that history, Brother Anthony? 
Well, uh, let's see. Uh, the most critical lesson to learn uh, to learn from that that Kwame uh, Turi observed when, when when he spoke was that black visibility is not black power, and that and, and history has shown that that is true. And uh, and uh, the the problem is our lack of political organization. We are a disorganized people, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and people that are disorganized have no political power whatsoever. And power is something you take. And the only levers we have are our numbers and our labor. And we got to be organized, and, we're not, and we've never been sufficiently organized to use that as a weapon. And that is why uh, the the the, uh, the political leadership, you know, in this society does not serve the interests of African people at any level. And uh, you know, and uh, you know, um, you know, I, I think Brother Maurice uh, pointed out the example of Bobby Rush going into the Democratic Party. It didn't work. The only the, the only way uh, you, you know uh, to get power is through independent political organization. The Democratic and Republican parties, as history shows, are two sides of the same coin: uh, the coin of uh, exploitation and imperialist domination. And as long as we continue to go uh, pursue that route, we will continue to be powerless. And I think something that the youth can take from, uh, you know, our historical experiences of trying to uh, participate in the vote is that we need independent political organization. And uh, that becomes more important more than ever because, um, you know, uh, very often uh, we have uh, political leadership that that does not vote in our interest, but votes in the interest of our enemies. And continue down the line with Brother Maurice. I'd like for you to respond to this narrative based on what history has um, taught us. We want to look at the history of the presidency. They will find that this particular position has a certain order. It has a certain value, it has certain principles, it has certain responsibilities that it must carry out in in, in conjunction to the needs and the interests of Western imperialism. It's the, it's, it's the, it's, you are the face of Western imperialism when you acquire this particular position. When you acquire this position, you acquire a position that is anti-Africa and anti-African people. You are acquiring a position that is anti-humanity. You are acquiring a position that um, seeks to understand that the only thing that is most important is to make profit at the expense of the people being pro-capitalist, pro-corporation. You are acquiring a position where you are a servant to those who own and control wealth in this country and throughout the world. So why would you want such a position? Understanding that you're already tied into this box, and that's how you have to function. In essence, you will have to be um, in opposition to the needs and the interests of your own people. 
your response to that, Brother Maurice? Yes, Brother Africa. Um, you know, basically, when Barack Obama went into office, first of all, he he had he had Africans do because when he was on the campaign trail, um, for for his on his first um during the 2008 election, he was quoting Malcolm X. Been, you know, he was doing it funnily, talking about uh, you've been running up. He was using his words basically. You've been running up. You've been bamboozled. Um, saying that to uh, voters of Hillary Clinton. Then he turns around when he get elected to president. Um, when he get uh, when he becomes president, he 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 gets Hillary Clinton as the second as the secretary of state. And Hillary Clinton, um, she she had a speech made and saying that colonialism was good for Africa. Africans benefited from colonialism. Right then and there, I said, "Damn, we we've we been run, we really been running up and been bamboozled." Um, to go to, to as a people to to um, believe in this fool, but and I would say when he when he when he first got into office, what did he do? Bail out the banks. And Barack Obama, don't don't, don't we we cannot uh, uh, negate the fact that after his presidency, maybe he he ranked where he's like a four he got forty he he's worth about forty million dollars or more. He came out good <laughs> being the president, right? He got book deals. Netflix deals, all these deals you got as president, uh, as a president. Um, but we, we can't, we can't be naive to the fact that a political, a person who is aligning themselves with the, this bourgeois political system is going to make any real uh, changes for us. It's not going to happen. Even Bernie Sanders, right? Everybody talking about Philip Burns. Do this, do that, right? Bernie Sanders voted for the return of of Asada Shakur. Alongside with majority of the congressional um, black caucus, they wanted the return of Assad Shakur. They didn't even they didn't even address the sister, our sister and freedom fighter as Assad Shakur as her rightful name. They addressed her as as the slave as as a slave name or the name that she had um, before she changed name changed changed the name to Assad Shakur. Um, they didn't even knew they didn't even address her as that name. So and Barack Obama going back to him. What the first thing he what, what what's another thing he did? He he offered what two million dollars on for the return of Assata Shakur. So we're we're dealing with we got to understand as a people, man, that you 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 got you got you 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 you, you, you got to understand. Are you are you for the people? If you really for the people, for the for the, for uh the working class, for the people in general, if you if you really are if you really embrace humanistic principles. Not killing people for wealth, not um, you know, not sacrificing people for profit. If you if you if you if you really embrace those uh, principles now, and you really you know you got a lot of nationalist uh, bourgeois uh, out bourgeois thinking people out here. But if you really care about if you're African, you care about Africans, but you really care about people people now, you got to rethink your um. You gotta rethink your political uh, motivations. You, you you know you 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 have to organize with the people. Like you said, learn like Obama stated this over and over again. Um, Mao stated this. You gotta you gotta you gotta work with the people. Robert Ray stated this. You gotta work with the people. You gotta learn from the people. You gotta eat with the people. You gotta be with the people. If you really care about the people, that's what you'll do. That's what you're doing. Not not taking pictures at a chick at a local black owned chicken joint. 
Ravenel Shopping with a bottle of hot sauce and thinking that's you you being for the people. No, you make a mockery of our culture. You make a mockery of the people. Singing a little bit of Al Green. Oh, he played basketball. Cause he, cause he, oh, he listened to rap music. That don't make that don't make that damn person a um, revolutionary, or that mean he care for the people. You got to work with the people. You got to be with the people. And and brother Anthony quoted Kwame to Ray. Uh, people, uh, they disrespected him. I call him Stokely Carmichael. Um, but Kwame to Ray, we did a presentation at at, at our school with kids uh, about Kwame to Ray. Let the kids let let our kids know about Kwame to Ray and the principal. We we that, that's we gotta embrace those type of type of gentlemen type of uh fine upright men, you know, um that's that's where we at people people even with the current became uh the, the situation that's going on in Burkina Faso is sickness because they had a great leader there they had a great party there position there when they had in the back in the eighties when they had Thomas Sankara Thomas Sankara believed in we talking about this thing called feminism what Thomas Sankara was was was, was already Doing, he was doing women, you know. He was doing true equality, having women in, in power over them, like Emil Cabral did in, in Cap Verde. You know, having women in power. He didn't want no Mercedes Benz. He don't. He ain't one of that. He rode bikes to to um to to the office or to what you would call the White House of Burkina Faso. That's what made a lot of people, or not a lot of people, that what made his his right hand man, Blaise Compaore, you know. Turn against him because he was, you know, his his uh, he was money hungry, you know, profit hungry. So we gotta identify these characteristics and people we are dealing with, and when you're dealing with the bourgeoisie type of system, man, you you know, you gotta understand like is it, is you is you is two is only one question: Are you for your people, or you are are you for profit? That's that's the only uh that's the only uh type of measurement you need to under you need to evaluate when you're dealing with with, with uh this whole system. Voting for these two is not gonna work, and I and I conclude by saying this. I know I've been long with it. We didn't vote ourselves. We didn't vote out of slavery. We didn't vote ourselves out of slavery. We organized and put pressure on America to, uh, to you know to, uh, uh, to to make slavery illegal. Harriet Tubman, Nat Turner, then Mike These people organized. Even Booker T. Washington. Right? What, uh, his, I know he had some negatives, but Frederick Douglass. All these people they organized. To get out, to get get us, even even uh, John Brown, you know, they organized to get out to 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 to, to stop the physical system of slavery or or you know uh, among America anyhow. Don't get it twisted, slavery is still going on, but these people organized. We didn't vote, we didn't like it, and not yet. You had a civil rights amendment and all of this stuff, but that didn't come from voting, brother. That came from brothers and sisters. That that came from the organizing of people. You understand? So we got to continue to organize, and, and not only organize the people, real organizations back back at, during those times, real organizations during the 1960s. And, and Ghana, we talk about Ghana, we talk about Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, they didn't get their uh, freedom by voting. They was organized. These, 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 they was organized. These people were organized. And Fumo came right out of jail into, into power in Ghana. through organized, organizing, working with the people. I can prove with that. Yeah, uh you're on the other side of the coin, uh the Republican Party. Uh you know, I'm I'm always amazed at these so called black conservatives because they they they, uh, they they tend to discount history, but it's very interesting. Uh I gotta take my hat off to J C Watts, uh the former representative uh from Texas. I mean from actually from Oklahoma. Um and uh he uh 
he was with the Democrat, I mean, the Republican Party for like 14 years, and um, he came to the realization. He said, "You know what? He said, I really believe that you know by being a part of this this this, this structure, being part of the Republican Party, that you know we can make some headway in terms of racial justice, you know, in the society." And he came to the realization that he was wrong. That ain't no uh, that, that, that these these people are um, diehard racist, uh, um, totally insensitive to the to the, the, the massive suffering or the wholesale uh, injustice inflicted upon African people. So he left the he left he left the he left the Congress, uh, he left the Republican Party, but it took him 14 years to figure out what people could have told him a long long time ago. That a lot of these people are very insensitive in terms of the plight of African people. They understand precisely what the issues are in terms of the systemic injustices inflicted upon African people. They know what they are. It's not a mystery. They know exactly what they are, whether it be economic, financial, or otherwise. They know exactly what the issues are in terms of how they systematically disadvantage African people. They know. They're the ones who innovate their policy. They know exactly what they're doing. But it took them 14 years to figure that out. So, you know, so this notion that, that politics. You know, some type of panacea that is somehow a solution to a, to our problems. Think again. So it doesn't matter whether you're Democrat or Republican. The bottom line is that the whole political structure is designed to maintain the oppression of African and or poor working class people. So clearly, you know, we got our work to be work, not work to be done. You know, Brother Moses. Um, in the past, we would have people who would sell you out. Today we have people sending you in to change your mind to this whole process, such as giving our faith to only two parties. Either you only have two choices according to this democracy. That's the Democrat Party and the Republican Party. What do you say to those individuals who tell you that we must and should continue to support and participate within the Democrat and Republican Party in order to get our freedom? Because based on history, if you look at the principles and the values that these parties represent, they are not principles and values that our people can use as a tool to feed themselves. Your response to that, Brother Moses? All right. Uh, first of all, let me say that you know revolution is a science, and it must be pursued as a science, as B.I. Lennon said. Uh, it must be pursued as a science. That means it must be studied, and we must study the revolutions in the various countries around the world and understand the, how it took place. And uh, that's why it's, it's, it's good uh, brother uh, brought up the revolution in Guinea-Bissau, I believe, uh, and, uh, you know, in China and Russia and Soviet Union and Cuba, Etc. You know, we have to study these revolutions. Now, obviously, you know, Bowdoin did not bring about the revolution. Uh, there's no question about that. Uh, in the Soviet Union, they, they used it as a tactic uh, um, to get into the Duma, and and uh, and uh, anyway, they kept agitating. They, they were part of a political party. That's the key thing, which I agree with. You have to be organized. You know, individualism is not going to make it. Uh, we have to be part of an organization, and we have to urge people to join organization. Uh, because that's the only way real change is going to take place is when we're organized and on one on one accord with a program of action that we all can agree and rally around. And uh, 
you know, so that's, you know, it's a long process, uh, and it involves serving the people, as Miles said, and, and you know, definitely be embedded in the people. And I'll leave it right there. Thank you. You know, apparently it's a lot of this whole theme about folks putting people in a great emphasis and trust and faith in this voting process. I think we need to remember that if anyone can give you something, they can also do what? They can take it from you. And I think Kwame Shereen was real clear when he made the point that looking at the history of African people in this country, any time, every time we make progress or win anything, it only came through struggle, to bloodshed. So if we're going to make progress, we're going to attain anything, you know, for African people, the history said you will have to struggle and shed blood. So in terms of this whole concept of just understanding that if they can give it to you, they can take it, out, take it away, then, then panelists, what do we say to those again in terms of this whole question of this voting process? Because it wasn't something that we, we, we necessarily... Um, uh, um, um, created that would benefit our interests. We didn't create this process. This process was created for us. So again, in terms of your finalizing, summarizing um, the question of why is it that people are placing still this, this great emphasis on the voting process? What do you say to them, panelists? Start with you, brother Haki. Brother Africa, I, you know, the point you make is very succinct. Uh, you know, if they give it to you, they can take it away. Uh, you know, we talk about the Voting Rights Act, but what people don't understand about the Voting Rights Act is conditional. Uh, and it's, 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 it's um, ratified every, I think it's every 20 years, every 25 years, it's reviewed uh, and they determine if it's going to go forward or not. And so clearly, in terms of the right of African people to vote in society, even that is questionable. So I think that, uh, you know, even on one hand, the articulated desire in terms of giving African people the right to enfranchise African people in terms of the right to vote, the reality is that it's conditional. They determine whether or not in 25 years you'll be able to, to actually uh, actually vote. So clearly, you know, um, you know, voting is, 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 is not the solution. And the emphasis that people put on, on voting for me is problematic. Uh, you know, I, I really... I try to, you know, I, I, I'm just always amazed when, when, when people get energized about voting. And it seems to me that, you know, you had a politician who tell them, listen, once elected, I'm going to do A, B, and C. But once they're in power, they do none of the above. And it's always amazing that they can come back three years, four years, you know, later and tell the people the same thing, and they fall for it again. Uh, you know, so but I do realize, that, you know, at, it, it, it slowly people are beginning to to recognize, you know, the absurdity of this of this political system because what happens is that you get over 100 million people who don't participate in it because they understand that the system is fundamentally corrupt and they they know it serves no real interest in terms of empowering empowering the masses of people and so therefore they don't participate in it. So there is some some realization. That uh, a lot of these, uh, uh, the way the system is designed, is not designed with, with, with working people in mind. So that is that is that in and of itself is a good thing. But I got to say, I am <laughs> amazed at people who get energized around voting, who think is the is a panacea, who think that it's going to solve all your problems, even though it doesn't solve any of your problems. Something as simplistic as housing, people's right to to housing, it shouldn't be a debate. People's right to affordable housing should be a right. It shouldn't be a debate. How is it the richest, so-called richest country in the world 
how is it that 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 you know affordable housing is not a right? How do you justify that? How do you justify poverty in a society with with supposed so called richest country in the world? How do you justify poverty? How do you justify that? Can can it be justified? It can't be. So if the political system was in fact working, then the situation in terms of problems in terms of unemployment, problems in terms of homelessness, or lack of affordable housing, or problems like poor educational system where kids don't have access to books, that wouldn't exist if in fact the political system worked. But the political system is not designed to in, incorporate the needs and aspirations of the masses of people. And this is what we have to understand. So for those politicians who get before you and say, well, when I'm elected, I'm going to do A, B, and C, they know damn well they're not going to do anything. The most you can expect from pro- progressive politicians is that they will get into power and raise the contradictions. That's all you can expect from them. So I respect the, 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 the quad, as they call them, squad, as they call them, AOC, uh, um, and the rest of the young ladies. So I respect, you know, I respect them a great deal. Because they raise the contradictions in terms of the system, that's all I that's all I expect them to do, and that's all I expect any any politician to do. I don't expect them to you know to uh, I I know they can't change a damn thing. Because number one, on to change things, you have to fundamentally change this entire structure. That structure ain't going nowhere. Certainly, we're not without without a fight. It ain't going anywhere. But at the very minimum, at least to articulate the the, the contradictions as relate to the system and why people don't have access to affordable housing, why people don't have access to food, why kids don't have access to books, and to articulate exactly why this is happening in society. Why is it that 1% of the population controls so much of the wealth? And understanding that in controlling all that wealth, you do a real disservice to the system at large. So the possibility in terms of housing, education, uh, employment, and those kind of things simply become uh, unattainable. So clearly, you know, uh, Brother Africa, I, I, I think that I'm always amazed. I'm, I'm very amazed in terms of you know, people still validate the political process, and it just speaks to the kind of socialization in which people have a, a desperate need to be part of something. Even if that being part of something means your, your, your ultimate destruction, you're willing to be a part of that. So I'm always amazed. Brother Africa, your response? Yes. Uh, he, what a lot of people don't understand In terms of uh, political empowerment, voting is actually the bare minimum that's required of the system. That is not how you get power. Uh, Political empowerment comes from actually understanding the, 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 the local city charter or constitution that governs your locality, for one thing. That way, you uh, uh, that way, if people actually studied the charters and constitutions that govern them, then they would know exactly what these political figures can and cannot do, and wouldn't fall for the okie doke all the time. And also, uh, uh, let's see, uh, uh, let's see what what Africans really need is political power. And power is something that, that that that's not given to you. You have to take it. And we're not organized enough to seize political power. Voting is something you do on election day or whenever the election is called, and that's it. And I mean, and I can understand that people can constrained by having to work two or three jobs to keep a roof over their heads would find it difficult for any further political involvement. But 
really what what it takes is to, is political organization and 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 if we want to get political power in this society or anywhere else in the world the people have to be organized and that means forming our own political organization coming up with our own agenda and because we lack that uh the african uh politicians that end up in office end up working the interests of those who are organized, which is the ruling of bourgeoisie and these various uh, lobbying groups that exist. They're political action committees, and they uh, and that what they do is they put pressure on the politicians. And we're not organized enough to do that, to hold the people we vote for accountable. And that's been a problem we've had uh, for decades. Brother Maurice, your response? Well, I, like like the brothers that just stated on the panel, I mean, this system that we're under, the American democracy was built off African labor. Labor. We we confirm that. We we up to that. We know that notion, right? Um, and as in the Constitution, it stated that this, this, this you know, this is for, well, you know, it, basically it was built for white men. African was not considered as human beings when this Constitution was written. So what makes us think that anything is going to change regardless of, of who, is, who is elected? Malcolm X said this one time, you have to redo the whole you had to redo the whole system for any real um, justice or for a real liberation, freedom. You have to, you have to, you have to eradicate the whole. You have to build a new system in order to get freedom and liberation. Until we do that, we still gonna have back and forth every four years, two to four years, um, or every four years, or two to four, like two to four years, you're gonna have a re- re-election. Like, like the brother alluded to earlier on the panel, brother uh, Hackey stated. They're going to give you the same speech, the same thing. We're going to do this. We're going to do this, knowing that they're not going to do it when they get in, in, into power. Same old, the same old thing, man. The same, the same thing is going to continue. Don't expect that you're going to get an African into a bourgeois system that's going to do something for black, black people. It's not going to happen. Um, the most I've seen it happen is done on a local level. But, and then again, even on a local level, how long is that going to benefit Africa? It's going to benefit Africans for that moment when the action is being done, but it's nothing that's going to last for generation to generation, as we see with Saad Alamin came in. A, well, I don't want to get into um, names, but, you know, just, just going into um, local politics alone, man, is, is, is you could do so much. You need a political organization. You need to organize. And some of my some of my peers in my generation stated, like, oh, I'm Man, we ain't gonna beat this system. They're they too powerful, man. They got drones and all of this, brother. If you was, if he was organized, it can be done. It, it's been shown. That's why we got to. It's crucial for us to study history. It, it was done in Vietnam. It's done in Cuba, and um, you know. So I say that. Um, I say that. I I, I conclude with that. And brother Moses. Also, brother Africa. Also, also, brother, real quickly, brother Africa. One of the things um, Maurice got me thinking, 
when we talk about the Constitution, you talk about this concept of originalism. In other words, what they're saying essentially is that the document that was created in the, six, in the, in the, in the, in the late 15th century is also, is also the document uh, uh, which is infallible. In other words, what they meant back then is what they mean today. That's sort of absurd, but that's what they're saying. And so when you talk about something like education, then what they're, essentially what they're saying that education is not a right. The founding fathers, the so-called founding fathers, never in, never anticipated or never articulated, you know, education being a right. And so, therefore, for them, education is based upon who's desirable, who should be educated, versus who should not be educated. And so, we have a situation fundamentally where where, where city schools are, 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 are allocated poorly. There's a reason why they're allocated poorly. You know, there's a thought behind that in terms of that to make sure. In other words. The position is that the kind of education you get is not on par with the education that the wealthy kids get because in order for them to maintain control, uh, they can't have an equal educational system. Also, more importantly, I think, uh, one of the things is that, um, you know, uh, in terms of perpetuating the system, if you only have a small group of people have access to real information, real knowledge, then you ensure the perpetuation of that system. And so, therefore, they have all these incentives in terms of doing things the way they did them back in the 15th, 16th century. So clearly, you know, uh, we had to understand, you know, when we, when, we, when we talk about when we talk about voting, that we, we're talking about in terms of this concept of originalism, that there there's no way possible that those people in positions of power give any credence whatsoever to the idea, you know, that African people, African children should have access to real education. It just doesn't exist. And so therefore, so so when you when you vote for these candidates in terms of um, in, in the hopes that somehow they're going to do those things which empower, then you're deluding yourself because you, we talk about a system which is fundamentally in the opposition in terms of inner real empowerment when it comes to, to African and working class people. And so, therefore, the only solution lies outside of that system in terms of bringing some type of redress. And, and, and Brother's right. With, the, with numbers, two things are needed. You've got to have the numbers and you've got to have the understanding. You have to have that frame of reference in terms of why you know, bringing about a new paradigm is so important because without that understanding, uh, it's possible. It's impossible to work together. So the struggle for us is that we're in America with a very powerful propaganda machine. So what we're saying, to a large extent, most people listen to it and just go one ear and out the other. Some people grasp what we're saying. Other people go in and out, ear and out the other, not understand the implications of what we're really saying to them. So we, we credit that to a powerful propaganda machine that makes sure that people don't understand what is in their best interest, who in turn are willing to fight for what is in their best interest. But if we don't, but you got to have, but you, but you need the numbers who, numbers in addition to the 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 the, the, the acumen, the intelligence, the understanding in terms of you know uh, what you're up against in terms of bringing about a real paradigm shift. That's not going to happen until people understand first and foremost, you know, um, you know that um, you know that you have to understand first and foremost. What's going on? You have to take a vested interest in understanding what's going on. So once you do that, then the numbers will come. But right now, it's just a struggle in terms of getting people to understand, you know, what is going on, why these things exist, why these structures exist, why the system operates the way it does, why so few have, why so few have so much, why so many have so little. We're trying to get people to come to the point where they begin to understand intrinsically, you know, what what that means in terms of their lives, what it means to their children's lives, and it's only then we'll be in a position to have the numbers that we need in terms of bringing about that paradigm shift or a new way of doing things in the society. Well, Brother Haki and the panelists, when you talk about this concept of original reality, you're also talking about this, 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 this concept of how they view 
African people. And when you talk about it in that context, they never view African people as human beings. So how do you overcome that reality, panelists? If they don't view you as a human being, and maybe that can explain why they treat African people the way they treat them today. That can explain maybe why they have policies toward African people, not only here but around the world, but they never viewed us as equal and they never viewed us as human beings. So how do we overcome that phenomenon, panelists, if that is the case? Uh, again, um, I think it takes uh, one permanent political organization and also you uh, and also an and a fundamental change in society and by fundamental i mean uh i mean changing the constitution which uh uh which uh, if uh, according uh to to my research uh the us has the oldest constitution in the world every country in the world has changed its constitution since the us has had theirs and uh, that was uh, finally ratified around the late 1780s, if my dates serve me correctly. And that is the Constitution that has been governing the United States uh, since that time. And, uh, and, that was, and it was based upon the political sentiments of the authors of that document at that time. So our uh, powerlessness and, uh, you know, lack of uh, political power was built, was built in structurally. Uh, take the Electoral College, for example. Uh, it, was, uh, uh, it, was the, uh, it was designed to ensure that only, uh, that, that only the ruling European bourgeoisie had political power, basically. And so, uh, and uh, and uh, let's see. And uh, as Frederick Douglass pointed out many years ago, power sees, can cease nothing without demand. Uh, it never did. It never will. And that and, and that's true to this day. So if we if we want political power, we have to organize to take it. Yeah, well, I think I think the question in terms of you know um, we're not perceived as human beings. I think that's pretty much uh, encoded in the uh, the uh, the Constitution when you refer to us as three fifths of a person. So clearly there was some some I mean uh, some prejudice as it relates to to African people. I think more importantly, brother Africa, I think in terms of justifying this just this, this vicious capitalist system. You have to define people as somehow less than uh, people who exploitation is understandable, given the fact that they are so lacking in many, many areas. So I think one of the things is that there is a there is a, a culture dimension to this problem. I think to a large extent, one of the things is that you know uh, you have um, you know uh, you you talk about African people who are very very or ancient people who are the original people, and so you have a situation which in terms of African people resident or or, or oppose the idea. In terms of war, and in fact, if you look at the history of African society, they've always had a structure which has always been very flat. In other words, the structure in which African society, traditional African society, is created was we all on the same level. We have different jobs, different responsibilities, but our needs are the same, so we're all on the same level. 
Now, if you compare that to the Western hierarchy in terms of the evolution of the West, it's always been up and down. And so, therefore, the notion that some people are more important than others based upon where you fall on that hierarchy, on that line, uh, determines, you know, how you're treated. And so, therefore, we, we, we find ourselves in this, this, this strange paradox of being part of America, which says that, being in America at least, which says that according to, as an African person, you, because of where you occupy that, on, that, on, that, on that vertical line, on that, excuse me, on that horizontal line, I'm sorry, vertical line, on that vertical line, where you, where you find yourself at determines on how you're treated. And so, therefore, those people in positions of power have no problem in terms of treating us less than simply because, you know, we're, because in terms of the, the way the system is structured, we're, we should be treated uh, very, very badly simply because of what we occupy. So the question in terms of one's humanity never comes into existence because they don't even, they don't even, they don't, they, 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 they don't see the, they, they don't see the humanity. What they see is where you fall on the, on the, on the, on the, on the, on the, on this, on this contingent. And so therefore, if you fall at the bottom, so therefore anything we do to you is justified because you fall at the bottom. So your question of potential humanity never comes to the question. So it is a fundamental, it's a philosophical problem. And I, I think to a large extent, too many African people have also internalized the notion that if you're uh, quote unquote on the bottom, that you're justified in turn the exploitation and oppression that you receive. And so and we have to fundamentally realign the way we think in terms of, you know, humanity. And one of the things why African history is so important, it teaches you that these paradigms, a lot of these way of doing things in the Western context are not the only way to do things. That in fact there is an alternative. There's more humane alternative. So we have countries like Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, uh countries like um like the Scandinavian nations, which says that, listen, you know, we're all in this together, and so therefore we make sure we create resources to provide for everybody and to make sure that everybody can be the best he or she can be, then we understand that there are alternatives to this Western doggy-dog kind of existence. But I think that this notion in terms of, you know, how, how African people are perceived, you know, is, you're absolutely correct, Brother Africa, is global. It's not just Africans born in the U.S. You know, recently in the U.K., uh, one of the um, – one of the um, I've got the guy's name. I think it's um, Cummings. His last name is Cummings. I can't think of his first name, but uh, he, he looked like a serial killer. But in any event, the serial killer-looking look, guy, he talked about the fact that his position is that, um, you know, um, you know that uh, the African people are, in fact, you know, um, intellectually in, inferior, and so therefore the exploitation of African people is justifiable. But he's just, he's just honest enough to actually say it. But most of them, in terms of the ruling class, believe that. Uh, but they, but on the same token, they know better because they understand the history of Africa. And they understand the origin of all people goes back to Africa, and they under, But 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 it's not in their interest to acknowledge that because you have to exploit people. You have to pit people against one another uh, in the society in order for the wealthy to remain wealthy. And so therefore, this notion that somehow that people of African descent are less desirable, or less uh, uh, deserving of you know fair treatment, uh, gets some, a great deal of legitimacy in the minds of people, musicians of power. So I think, um, given that reality, I think it's just incumbent upon African people, you know, themselves, to understand their contributions in terms of in terms of the world, who you are, and what does that mean in terms of being a human being. We cannot lo- no longer uh, acquiesce to this notion, you know, that where we fall on a on a spectrum, uh, it determines how we should be treated. We have to reject that that foolish that foolish thinking, and understand that all human beings, irrespective of their skin color should be privy to those things which uh, 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 makes it possible for them to be the best he or she can be. All right, listen, audience. Yes, go ahead. Uh, Real quick, real quick. I just also want to add that if Africans Africans see that, Africans got to understand and see, like, 
this this system can shut down overnight. If Africans are who, who are in, in Africa and the mass, the bauxite mass, the cobalt mass, the uranium mass, all these mass that they're digging in Africa, if they were so, if we were so organized to the point that they would, they, they drop, they they leave the mass, they forget this. I ain't, you know, we not doing this. We not doing that on, on that end, like digging the, digging the minerals up. And, Af- and on the flip side of that, you have Africans around the world, and these, you know, at our core plant uh, with aluminum plant, Reynolds plant, or or, or you know, like uh, Firestone and Liberia. If everything stopped right now, or you know, right now, if we had if Africans all around the world had this mindset, that system that would be a big blow to the system right then and there. Uh, I, 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 you know, and, and we've seen it in. in, in Stage. We've seen this before with the drum movement in Detroit, the Dodge Revolutionary Union movement, who organized 4,000 workers um, at the Chrysler plant in Detroit. They shut it down, and 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 and, and tank. It made it. It made, if I'm not if I'm if I'm not mistaken, or if I'm not um, giving the wrong information, I want to get the wrong, wrong information. Please correct me if I'm wrong. That this slowed up the manufacturing process of army tanks going into South Africa during that time. See, if we have that understanding. If we had that understanding, brothers, uh, as 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 a people all around the world, that you see that we are one people, as Africans, we are African. We not we not Nigerians. We not uh, Texans. We not Bloods. We not Crips. We not Kinka. We not Europe. We are African. We get that understanding. We can we can overcome propaganda and then get and, and overcome that propaganda. Understand that we are African. Understand that what what affects my brother in, in in the Congo affects me. What affects my brother in the UK affects me. If we have that understanding, this this system can it, it could be it, the uh, revolutionary can be achieved and accomplished. But until we get that man, we got until we get that understanding, uh, we got a long way to go. We got a long way to go. Yeah, I'm gonna add that. Uh... That uh, you know, we we gotta start uh, thinking. Uh, 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 we gotta realize what our true identity is. We gotta realize that we're Africans. Uh, we 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 may we are we we may be a minority inside the U.S., but that is only in the U.S. In several countries around the world, we're we're a majority. And the thing about it, though, and we, and when we, and when we, we unite in the diaspora and at home, we're probably the second, uh, uh, you, you, you know, largest ethnic group in the world after the Chinese. But the thing about it, though, we lack that unity of thought that's necessary to bring that about, and that's the level we have to get to in order to gain our freedom. Yeah, but that the issue of colonialism is uh, weighs very heavily in terms of you know strategizing when it comes to the continent. Uh, you know, uh, clearly we understand that we're all Africans, but we do have that contingent on the continent, uh, which you would who, who would fight tooth and nail against the idea that there should be some collective understanding in terms of one's Africanity. So this is a fundamental problem that, that we have. And so for those individuals who say you know I'm Yoruba. You know, or someone um, from a Ghana say I'm a Khan, or someone from Ethiopia say I'm, um, um, uh, you know, I'm a uh, Amhara, or or yeah, or I'm Roma, or, what, or whatever. You know what I mean? Uh, and so therefore, you know, one of the things is that 
colonialism has done a very good job in terms of reinforcing the notion of being different based upon the, the language you speak or the culture that you practice. And if we don't overcome that, then fundamentally then we, we, there's no chance in terms of bringing about the kind of unity we need in terms of overcoming imperialism. And this is a struggle we have because you've got to keep in mind, a lot of these leaders that are propped up in Africa, either by the West, have the mindset that their obligation is to their tribe. It's not their obligation to their people because they don't see their people as their people. They see their tribal. And so when and so when um, so when someone calls in and say, well, you know, well, they they don't see you as African, you know, because you know you were born in such and such a place. We understand we understand that that mindset. I mean, we understand that mindset, and it's what's killing and it's what's killing Africa, uh, because a lot of that working together is not as simplistic as we like to believe. And my you know many many years, decades and decades of traveling to Africa, and interacting with different tribal groups, and and, and dealing with you know different. Um, the prevailing philosophies, you know, different tribal groups. It's tough, man. It's tough. It's tough. And so it's good that we have a Africans, you know, born in the West to serve as somewhat of a catalyst in terms of, you know, for pushing forward this discussion in terms of why this collective understanding of what an African is is so important to the aspiration and survival, you know, of African people in the continent. So, um, but I say that, but we can't underestimate the role in terms of colonialism, in terms of its ability to poison and to prop up the most corrupt, the most most heinous kind of individuals in positions of power, you know, on the, on the continent. So, you know, it's a, it's, it's a long, long struggle, you know. It's a long, long struggle, you know, but we shouldn't delude ourselves to believing that it's, you know, that uh, this question in terms of the impact of colonialism on Africa is a, is, a, is a small one, is a big one. And we have to do something in, term, in terms of overcoming that. It doesn't take much, much struggle, much, much discussion around, you know, why it's so preferable that we create a situation in which, in which we have a collective understanding in terms of one's Afri- Africanity. Well, Pat, let's, let's test pause for the call. We're going to go into some sounds of sweet liberation. And when we come back, we will continue the discussion on what's going on in our community um, in the world. And we'd like to have you, the listening audience, Call in, call in at 323-609-0841. Remember, we're in the seat. We're going to take the heat, and when we need to find it, we're going to stand behind it. This is Africa on the move. Don't you where you come from? 
If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine Palestine. needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do because Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs
Say it again. Whoa, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. That's right. Stop fighting the rich man walls. Stop fighting the imperialist walls. Stop fighting these capitalist walls and stop fighting these Zionist walls. They're actually good for nothing. Welcome back to Africa on the Moon. You listen to Brother Africa. And we want to let you know that we are still continuing the segment on what's going on now. We're in the community, and you can join in by just simply picking up your phone and dialing in at 323-679-0841. And we've been discussing a real critical issue in terms of what is happening to us. And that issue is how we are continuing to be sold down the drain or overstating, overvalue, overemphasizing this whole concept of voting in the context of this particular capitalist system. We would like to continue just a little more on the discussion, and then we'll close out with some final thoughts and let you know that there will be a continuation of this program on part three, not free, what is happening to us next week at the same time, same place, from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you have any comments or views on this show and others, please email us to at Africa on the Move number two at Gmail. We'd like to hear your views and your thoughts. So, panelists, we'd like to welcome everyone back. I think this is such a critical issue that we're discussing because not only every four years, but I think ever since our existence, we've been dragged into this um, box of this question of voting and what we will get out of it. One of the things I would like for this panelist to um, critique and express their um, thoughts on is this question of when we're talking about equality, when we talk about this question of equity, when we talk about this question of power, one we have to ask this question. How can you have a political party that's made up of millionaires and billionaires and have a same party that is made up of folks with no money, no capital? And we're talking about fairness, we're talking about equality, we're talking about justice. How can that be? Whose interests would dominate? We have a party like the Democratic Party that is made of millionaires, billionaires, and those who have no money at all versus the Republican Party, which is also composed of, composed of millionaires and billionaires and poor people with no money. When we come to those realities, panelists, how would this play out? Well, how has it played out, Brother Hackey? Yeah, well, the reality is that you can't have um, a party of those two extremes, uh, no question about it. Specifically, when you talk about a capitalist society in which, you know, uh, dictates rules that uh, is all about the money. And if it's all about the money, then obviously those who those who get the money uh, make the rules. And so as a consequence, you get rulings like uh, Citizens United, which says that, you know, uh, your speech is, is is predicated on how much money you have. And so obviously, if you're wealthy, what they're saying is that you have a lot of speech. But if you're poor, you have no speech because you have no money. So clearly, there is a, there is a, a real irony in terms of you know a political structure supposedly representing the wealthy and the very poorest among us. So clearly, I, I think that it's, sim- it's simply impossible. So this is why we talk about you know a, a people's party or a third party. Because it, to even to articulate, begin to articulate the interests of, of, of working people and the poor people in society, 
you need one who's aware of the particular problems as they impact you know, poor, poor and working class people. And the reality is that you, when you ask wealthy people, you know, what they perceive the problems are, well, it's sort of difficult in terms of them to perceive what the problems are among the poor simply because they live in ivory towers. And so, therefore, their fight, their struggles are not the same as, as, as the struggle of poor people. For the wealthy, their struggle is how can you capitalize on a tax code? Uh, how can you get around paying your fair share of taxes? How could you put those taxes offshore uh, so you don't have to pay taxes? Uh, for the welfare, it's more um, bread and butter issues in terms of how do you survive, how do you pay the rent, um, you know, uh, you know, you know, what about a school, a quality school for my child, um, you know, um, you know, what about a job? I mean, making a decent wage. Those are bread and butter issues in which the poor are confronted with. Those are not the issues that wealthy people are confronted with. And so, therefore, in terms of articulating, you know, uh, interest. Uh, clearly, uh, in the capitalist society, the interests of the power of the wealthy uh, uh, by far surpasses the interests of working people. And so this is why we have to understand that we have to have that third party. Without the third party, our interests won't be articulated. Brother Anthony, your response to this phenomenon? Yes. Uh, let's see. The way The way you describe the parties is currently structured. It is the wealthy that controls uh, both parties, which is really why, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, among some activists, uh, is uh, it, 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 it is for all practical purposes one political party, because it's, uh, it represents the same class interests, the, the interests of the wealthy. And uh, and uh, and uh, and if you contrast that to a uh, you know to a socialist society like Cuba, you uh, in order to get political office, you do not have to be a millionaire. As a matter of fact, in Cuba, you don't you don't spend, uh, spend your money on your campaign, and uh, so people from all walks of life. You know, sir, uh, you know, occupy the various governmental positions that exist in a socialist society like Cuba, whereas in uh, whereas in a capitalist society like the U.S. or Britain, it is the uh, it is primarily the petty bourgeois and bourgeois interests that are you know that are the appointed or high level officials inside government. And uh, and that's not going to change until the structure of this society is changed, and that's going to take permanent political organization. And uh, and and if people understand that the, that the duopoly only represents uh, the, the 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 ruling bourgeoisie, then they realize that it's important for us to form our own independent political organization. Well, we as of, as of right now, we have ten ten black billionaires who total income or total worth, if you put them all together, it'd be thirty five billion dollars. And this is ten black billionaires. A couple we know we know is you know we we know them we know them we know them exactly who some of these people are like Oprah Winfrey, Michael Jordan, but. Just think, man. You got ten black billionaires with a total wealth of thirty-five billion dollars. If each of these billionaires was just to contribute one million dollar each, it would be ten million dollars total. 
and go into, let's say they go into one country of Africa and to build infrastructure. They don't even have to be, you don't even have to have political education to do that. If they just had that understanding to do that, that would be a huge, but not going there to build schools and, oh, I got a school in my honor. Not going there to say, oh, I'm, I'm the chief or I'm the, uh, I'm the queen, I'm the queen mother, I'm the, I'm the king. No, not going there for that. If you just had an understanding, like, okay, I'm just, all of us, 10 billion there, we're going to $1 million each and go build infrastructure. Uh, and some of these people, some of these uh, billionaires um, got their wealth off Africa, you know, off the minerals and, tele- and the communications. But let's just say they had that understanding to do that. Not in, no, not in the interest of accumulating more wealth, but in the interest of just building up people, investing in people, not investing in their own pockets. If they had that understanding, so which they don't. So we sitting right here talking about, oh, man, Oprah Winfrey to run for, uh, to be president. We That's not should be a mindset. The mindset is if she's not doing anything with $3 billion, that's her money, that's, that's the wealth she got, right? And she's not doing anything uh, to alleviate um, Africans out of out of poverty, or to alleviate Africans um, out of their out of our everyday struggles. She, if she's not using, utilizing none of that, not even a not even a, a third. I mean, you know, not even a, a, a crumb of that wealth to that. What makes you think she's going to do something when she becomes president? Nothing. She's not going to do anything. So we got to understand that these that these um that, that these people, even Michael Jordan, you know, Michael Jordan. He got his uh, wealth off shoes. You know, Africans, we love well, we love Jordans, man. We kill over Jordans. But did he did he come out and say anything about uh, violence of these shoes in the 90s or now? I haven't heard him say anything about it. Um, he, you know, so we, we just got to understand that being, becoming a billionaire, becoming a millionaire, is, that's not enough. That's not no freedom. Because at the end of the day, you still got to uh, look at the entertainers who spoke out against the system. Michael Jackson, that wealth is that wealth is going, that wealth is leaking out. I don't, I don't think his, his kids not going to see all, all that wealth. Man, Sony got some of that wealth back. But when you uh, look at Sam Cooke, look at um, Otis Redding, that wealth is about gone now. You know, coming, you know, becoming a millionaire or whatever. That should not be the be the goal. What should be the goal is becoming more honestly, becoming organized with, with our people. Look at the look at the Zulus. That should be our goal. Look at the Haitian Revolution. That should be our goal. Um, that, that that definitely should be should be our goal as now. Building up. Look, and even Tulsa, Oklahoma. People talking about Black Wall Street. I don't want to call them Black Wall Street. Stop trying to duplicate a white society and just color it black. No, we, we they look. We need to build, build little Africa. You know, little little Cubans. That's that's the that's the idea where we need to go right now. People talking about. Glorified Cuba for its cigars and its plastic cars that they uh, do in Havana. No, we need to glorify Cuba for the for the revolutionary spirit, um, for that you know for for housing, for the human that's the, just being a human, for growing for for understanding human beings need food, they need health care, uh, free health care, they need free housing. Just understanding that basic, man. That's what that's that, that's to be the motivation. And Brother Moses, your thought? Yeah, well, we have a situation in, uh, here in the U.S. of A. where we got this fascist power and control of the government and the 
power structures that have been designated by the ruling parties from the beginning of this country and their profit-oriented system. And, you know, until things change, and it's going to take organization, it has to be be toppled. It won't fall of its own accord. It can always readapt and readapt until we get control of the situation itself. And so, you know, these are the tasks that we're we're faced with, and it's going to take organization, and, and you can't emphasize that enough. And uh, we just got to be about that business. Thank you. Okay, panelists, we're going to do a little something different this time where we normally give you actually do your closing remarks. But since we are coming off uh, one day at the end of African History Month, and we are talking about part two, not free, what's happening to our people, we'd like to take these last few minutes to share with our listening audience on a special presentation that was done by Brother Kwame Ture dealing with lessons from the 60s, 70s, and 80s because we believe it ties into what's, what's going on today in terms of our realities. So we're going to leave our listening audience today with a message from Brother Kwame Ture as he spoke on the history of the lessons of 60s, 70s, and 80s, and we'd like to look forward to hearing you back next week, same time, same place. And until then, we now bring you Brother Kwame Ture. We thank you for your welcome. We have been allotted uh, half an hour, and uh, within this half an hour, we are to explain some of the lessons of the movement of the 60s and uh, its relationships of the 80s and relevance to the 21st century. I have picked about uh, five areas that I, I have picked about five areas which I would like to uh, discuss. The first lesson that we can come to look from the 60 and gain is the understanding that the statement made by Abraham Lincoln is a true statement. You can fool some of the people some of the time, but you cannot fool all of the people all of the time. This statement can be understood within the context of United States imperialism and its role in the late 50s. In the late 50s, based on the resolutions passed at the 5th Pan-African Congress in 1945, a decision was made that Africans the world over must create mass organizations and mass movements to confront colonialism in Africa and the Caribbean in the final round and also to confront racism and economic exploitation in the United States. From 1945 to 1960, Within 15 short years of this conference, over 230 million Africans were to gain independence. Swiftly following in that wake, the Caribbean was to light a fire with independence movement, and of course, the United States of America itself, beginning its mass movement since the mid-50s with Martin Luther King and the Montgomery boycott, came to show mass movements everywhere. The American capitalist system, in the wake of the independence struggle in Africa, 
was trying everywhere to demonstrate to countries just struggling against colonial powers in Europe that it was not like the European powers, that it was not racist, it was democratic, it never had colonies, etc., etc. The African masses in America came to put that lie to arrest quickly. Mass struggle inside the country came to demonstrate before the entire world that America was far from being a democratic country. It came to demonstrate, in fact, that countries in Africa were much further advanced in democracy than America ever was. Here, at least, Africans can vote. In America, they could not. One of the lessons, then, that we must draw squarely from the 60s is an understanding that real struggle must be left and must be understood only by the masses of the people. It is the masses of the people who could not believe the lies of America and came to struggle instinctively against these lies. This instinctive struggle must be properly understood. History, of course, is made both consciously and unconsciously. Last month in Miami, Africans came to unconsciously make history by revolting against brutal conditions and pushing humanity forward. But this was instinctive, unconscious, unplanned. Indeed, this is the same aspect of the struggle that we saw in the 60s, instinctive struggle. Thus, if we're to draw a conclusion just from this aspect of struggle, that is to say the people struggling unconsciously, unplanned, spontaneously, and instinctively, that since people have an instinctive love of freedom, everywhere they will struggle for freedom. The history of Africans in America proved this clearly. Nowhere have they consciously organized to make advance. All the advances they have made have been unconscious, instinctive, and spontaneous. Certainly you can understand what will happen when these people become thoroughly organized. The lessons then must be clear. Human beings, like animals of the lower form, have instincts. Human beings, unlike animals of the lower form, have the ability to think and reason. The lesson then must be clear. All of our instincts at all times, under all conditions, must be governed by reason. The instinctive struggle of the 60s, the spontaneous struggle of the 60s, the unconscious struggle of the 60s, if they are, served to, if they are to serve to us as lessons, must come to be qualified in conscious movements, or rational movements, and planned movements. This then seems to me to be the first lesson that we would have to acquire from the 60s. <clears throat> of course, the capitalist system lies all the time. Some people think it lies some of the time, but it lies all of the time. And in lying, it has an attempt to make us think that in the 60s we were an organized people and everything was all right. We were not organized. We were a mobilized people. Thus are we to get a heavy lesson from the 60s. The lessons must be clear. A mobilized people, really, an instinctive people, a spontaneous people who struggle, struggle like animals. Even if we take the example of Miami, we can see it clearly here. In Miami, we're oppressed, just like we are everywhere else. But we wait until an outside force provokes us into action. Everywhere you will see us, it is always an outside force that provokes the African masses into action, even on the campus here. I told some brothers the other day, you want to organize all the African students on the campus? I can do it overnight. All I got to do is write a filthy sign, derogatory against them, put them on the campus. Next day, they all come to the meeting. 
And one of the errors that must be corrected, a people struggling for their freedom cannot depend upon an external force to push them into motion. They must have an internal dynamism of their own. Consequently, the African masses, in drawing lessons from the 60s, must come clearly to understand that they must have a dynamism in their hands to tell them when to attack the enemy, how to attack the enemy, and where to carry their struggle. Thus, the 60s must come to be qualified from a mobilized struggle to an organized struggle. We say they fight like animals. You back an animal up against the wall, and the animal, even a rabbit, will come out striking at you until you back up. Those Africans, once provoked, come out striking wildly, as they do in Miami. The police retreat, give them some concessions, they sit down, and then the police comes back with more repression. None of the gains made by a, by a mobilized people can be maintained. It is only an organized people who can make gains and use those gains to further their struggle. Indeed, the gains made by the 60s, since they were made by an unorganized people in a state of mobilization, have not been used by the people, but in fact used by the enemy against the people. It is clear for the history of Africans in America that unlike others in this country, the history is not the same, entirely different from everybody else. All those who came here came here expecting a better life. An African put on a slave ship from Africa knew he was coming to hell. It's a fact. Consequently, the relationship between the country cannot be same unless this African has lost consciousness of his history and think that he came on the Mayflower. <laughs> this aspect of organization from mobilization must be properly understood. No individual African in this country makes any advancement based on his individual talents or worth. All individual advancements are based on mass struggle. This must be properly understood and can be properly underlined for you once you know the history of Africans is not the same as the history of others. We make no progress in this country without shedding our blood. No one sitting in this audience can give me one example where Africans in this country have made any progress without shedding their blood. In order for them to get into a filthy five and ten cent store, they must shed their blood. In order to sit on a bus where they pay the same amount as everybody else do, they must shed their blood. In order to get their children into state schools where they pay taxes more than anybody else, they must shed their blood. In order to get the vote which every immigrant gets the minute he comes here, they must shed their blood. Consequently, any advances made by any individual African is made as a result of mass struggle. Thus, that position does not belong to the individual African, it belongs to the people. Failure to use this position for the benefit of the people is a betrayal of the blood of the people. Consequently, when we come to correct the 60s and look properly at the lessons, we must become an organized people who, once having made gains, are capable of choosing for ourselves who will occupy those gains. They come to talk about some man named Brown who's going to be head of the Democratic Party. Who picked him? Who picked him? Did the African masses in the Democratic Party pick him? Not at all. As a matter of fact, the Democratic Party holds the Africans in great contempt. They have more elected positions than any other ethnic group in the Democratic Party and has no power in the party at all. They have 302 mayors, 20 congresspeople, 5,000 state, county, local, but no other ethnic group in this country has those many elected officials and still they have no power in the Democratic Party. Why? Because we are not organized. Consequently, to transform our movement, to push it to higher levels, which it must go, because we will arrive at our freedom, if even instinctively, 
We must come here to put ration and clear reasoning to our struggle and organize the masses of our people. The second lesson we wish to speak of is the role of students. Students, of course, have a role in any society, capitalist society, social society, and their role is to institutionalize the values of the given society. Conscious, of course, in a capitalist system, this should be done unconsciously. But students are the spark of revolution. Of course, we make a difference here between revolution and reform. Those who want reform seek to work, I guess, from the top down. Those of us who understand fundamental changes know it must come from the bottom up. The students, of course, always work at the point of ideas in a society. Their job is to acquire knowledge, and of course, this knowledge which they acquired is geared by an ideology which tells them what to do with it. So if you're a doctor, instead of curing cancer, you should turn a man to a woman to get money even though she can't make babies. <laughs> that was life. Students, we say, at the point of ideas and the point of values. When one speaks of revolution, one speaks of overturning the values of a given society. If one is not speaking of overturning the values, then one speaks of reform. Thus, one can join the Democratic Party. We're not here to overturn its value. But certainly if one is here for revolution and one is here for people's liberation, one would know that a corrupt instrument can never lead a people to liberation at all. Students then, we say, come to question the values of a society. Of course, in relationship to the values, students, just like anyone in any society, have but two alternatives. Either they accept the values or they reject the values. It's as simple as that. Of course, if they reject the values, they have a responsibility to find alternative values. But either you accept cheating as a student or you reject it. It's as simple as that. Either you accept any value in a society or you reject it. Students, once having rejected a society, bringing together their ideas and their energies and strength to work against these values connected with the masses always give us revolution. Thus, from the 60s, while a reform movement, we were able to see that students, joined with the masses of the people, came to bring a lot of changes to the country. Thus, we must not confuse ourselves. The job of students is clear here. Their job is to spark revolution. Students cannot carry revolution through to the end. The final triumph of revolution must be carried through to the end by the masses, the workers and the peasants. But students play a crucial role. We say they spark revolution. Certainly, if we did not recognize this, the enemy did. The FBI, before the 60s, did not have informers on college campus. After the 60s, they put an informer on every college campus in the country. Their job was simple, stop any activity at all that runs against the status quo. We say it's a mobilized people who can allow this, because when you're mobilized and fight like an animal, after you get tired and you wind down, then the enemy comes back stronger than he did before. Students spark revolution, and we must work everywhere to have students live up to their responsibility of sparking revolution. Here, of course, it calls for the students properly understanding the role of knowledge. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Capitalism is a backward and stupid system. Capitalism is a contemptuous system. Capitalism is a system made on profit. It will make a commodity out of everything. It will take my mother and sell her on a slave block. It will make students acquire knowledge and make them sell their knowledge on the slave block to advance themselves rather than serving humanity. The struggle becomes especially crucial for African students. We say no individual African in this country makes any advance unless it is a result as mass struggle. 
Any student sitting in any seat in any college in America know that they didn't gain that seat through their own individual talents, but only through the struggles of the masters of their people. Because that seat belongs to the people. The knowledge they acquire there must be used for the people, otherwise they have already betrayed the people and have repeated errors. Uh, the students of the 80s going into the 90s have a responsibility to use their knowledge to help advance the struggles of humanity. We say the lessons here must be properly understood and the students going to spark these movements must go properly organized in order to bring organizational skills to the masses of the people. The third area the 1960s, of course, was a mobilized area, and in a mobilized area, there would be a lot of confusion. One of the biggest areas of confusion was the basis of the struggle. Some felt that the base of the struggle must be made by appeals to morality. Of course, anyone knowing anything about struggle knows that this cannot be. Even Frederick Douglass so long ago told us that uh, power concedes nothing without demands. It never did, and it certainly never will. Consequently, what was learned from the struggles of the 60s is that when one comes to struggle, one must struggle for power, not for morality. Certainly, one cannot speak of morality when one is speaking to capitalism. It is an immoral system. It has no conscience. It knows only its own interest. It will commit genocide to take land from the red man. It will commit slavery to enrich itself. It will drop napalm bombs on babies in Vietnam. Consequently, when we come to talk of advancing ourselves through power, we must come to speak of just that, power. And we must understand that the only place we find power is through the organized masses. Simply put, until the masses of our people are organized, we will remain powerless and thus the victims of all vicious powers that seek to exploit us. The question of morality, of course, must not be put aside, no. But it is clear that any struggling people struggling for justice are already struggling uh, for a moral struggle. Consequently here, the question of morality doesn't lay with them, but with the enemy who seeks to keep them oppressed. We must then understand clearly that when we look for power in the 90s, we must look, when we, look for, when we struggle in the 90s to advance ourselves, we must struggle only based on our own power, the power of the, the ability to organize our people. Of course, we said that we advance only through mass struggle, and that is clear. Consequently, we must come to understand that it is only through mass organization and conscious mass struggle that we will properly arrive at our liberation in a planned manner. This leads to another point which must be clear, the questions of coalitions. The 1960s, of course, made many errors with coalitions. Here, we believe that political coalitions could be made based on sentiment. Somebody said they feel the way we do, and consequently we come to organize them. The history, of course, of our people shows that this cannot be the case. If one would go back to the history of the South in this country immediately after the Civil War, there arose at that time a party known as the Populist Party. One of the leaders of the Populist Party was a man by the name of Tom Watson, a white man from Georgia. Watson came after the Civil War to tell the Africans that the rich white man, he exploits the poor white man and the poor African. And consequently, what we need to do is to join an alliance against the rich white man. Well, you know us Africans, we just love anything anybody. We just ran into the party. <laughs> we filled the party of the populists. We did work for the populists. We were everywhere in the populist party. After the Hayes-Tilden Compromise, 
when the government decided to give the South back to the slave masters, Tom Watson became a member of the Ku Klux Klan and drove us out of the Populist Party. What was the error? The error was that as a force we were not independently organized, thus not even knowing our own power. We went in as individuals into the party, thus they could chase us out. Examples will be found everywhere. The struggle of the labor movements in this country is certainly instructive. If one would look at the struggle for labor unions in this country, one would find that Africans have everywhere played a role out of proportion to their numbers. If you look at labor unions today, they are racist from top to bottom. What was the error? Africans came to enter the unions without being first an organized force. The 60s then come here. We were told that we had coalitions with groups I've never heard of, the labor union. We had interests with the church groups, all of them. They were all, all for our interests. <laughs> of course, the error was that some Africans thought that the interest of America was the same as the interest of us. Of course, the job of the system, the job of the enemy is to confuse you and to let you think that your interest and your history is the same as that of your oppressor. As a matter of fact, the job of the master is to convince the slave that the master is really concerned about the interest of the slave. And if the master doesn't do well, the slave will be in trouble. Any slave who believes that he has the same interest as the master will pick cotton at night. All slaves must understand that their interests are diametrically opposed to the interests of the master. Not only are they diametrically opposed, they are antagonisms to each other. What is good for the master is bad for the slave. What's bad for the master is good for the slave. Of course, we said that even the people instinctively understand this, and the 60s come to clarify the point clearly. Of course, if you would look at the 60s, you would see at the height of the struggle, the struggle for human rights, came to be, uh, there came to be some confusion here with the war in Vietnam. The people always see clearly. Instinctively, the people understood, the African masses, that they had to be against the war in Vietnam. There was no question here. But it was in just expression of this position against the war in Vietnam that one came to see that in order to have coalitions, one must really have coalitions based on interest. I am not even talking here of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was really the radical cutting wing of the movement of the 60s, and which was the first one to take a position against the war in Vietnam. Indeed, it did not take a position for peace. It took an anti-imperialist position. It said clearly it wanted the Vietnamese to win, and the way it was going to do that was to demobilize the Americans by not having an army. Thus, the slogan which Snick gave to them was a simple one. Hell no, we won't go. Simple as that. And that simple slogan, of course, came to cause splits within these coalition forces. The labor unions who walked hands in hands with us for, for struggles all of a sudden were for the Vietnam War against us. The church itself had to step back. Obviously here, we didn't understand what we were fighting for. We thought we were fighting for freedom. And Dr. Martin Luther King said it all the time, freedom is indivisible. As a matter of fact, he used to say all the time, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Consequently, if there's injustice in Vietnam, I'm stupid thinking I'm sitting in America not to think that it affects me. If there's injustice in Vietnam, I better go cut it down before it comes to find me. Consequently, since Africans, assuming that justice was indivisible and began to move and to move everywhere against injustice, they came up against contradictions with those whom they made coalitions around the question of the war in Vietnam. We only use it here as a clear example. Africans cannot form coalitions until they themselves are organized and know exactly what their interests are. Thus, there's no need for us to talk now about coalition with anybody because we are a disorganized people. First, we must become organized. 
It is for this reason that we're held in such contempt by the Democratic Party, because inside the Democratic Party, we are a disorganized people, even inside the fair, with one fighting against the other, simply because we have not organized ourselves properly. It is for this reason that they will give us somebody and make us think that we pick them just because he looks like us. <coughs> Coalitions then can only be formed once we are organized and know precisely what our interests are. What then are the relevancy for the 90s? Revolution is inevitable everywhere in the world, this is clear. And anyone taking just a cursory glance at the United States of America must know that America is more ripe for revolution today than it was in the 60s. What are the conditions that lead us to this conclusion? Number one, the conditions are worse today than they were in the 60s. In the 60s, we didn't have to deal with three million homeless. And not only that, the very objective conditions put the people into contradictions with their own instinctive knowledge. Every man and woman in America, even the most unconscious man or woman in America, knows that America has enough wealth to feed and clothe three million homeless. It's a question of the will of the people. Consequently, the objective conditions we say are higher, but these objective conditions are higher with also another rising factor, the rising consciousness of the people. The enemy tries everywhere through their mouthpiece, the mass media, to make it appear as if the people's consciousness is not growing, as if it stopped. This is stupidity. The consciousness of the people must forever grow. And some of us become confused, not even understanding how it manifests itself. The other day, having a discussion with an elderly man, he came to say to me, Kwame Ture, you're always up on the college campus with our students. I said, oh yes, I work with them all the time. He said, uh, they are more unconscious. They're so unconscious, they're more unconscious than you were when you were a student. I said, never. He said, yes. I said, no, if they're more unconscious than we were, our work was in vain in the 60s. He said, no, I'm telling you, they're more unconscious than you are. I said, no, they cannot be. He said, if you go up on the college campus and talk to them, they know nothing about Martin Luther King, they know nothing about Malcolm X. I said, that's correct. We don't teach them. But one thing is certain, you cannot put them on the back of a bus. Yeah. Yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. Conscious he was, he went on the back of the door. <laughs> Once history is made, it cannot be unmade. The job of the enemy is to push the people back. Once we broke out of slavery, they did everything possible to push us back into slavery. No, sharecropping, yes, but not slavery. Since the 60s, they've been doing everything else to push us back. But once a man or a woman has learned something, as Sigmund Freud has scientifically demonstrated, it never leaves the mind even if he thinks he's forgotten it. And once the people have learned something through struggle, never can they forget it. Consequently, the struggles of the 60s must be, un must, you must understood, are already ingrained in the culture of the people, making them more determined to fight, not less. If you come to look properly at America, we say it is more ripe for revolution today than ever before. In the 1960s, and we must show here the rising level of political consciousness, if you want to see the rising level of political consciousness in this country, don't look to the left, look to the right. The right in America today are involved in activities which in the 1960s they considered to be communist. If you would look properly at America today, you will see the conditions are more ripe. 
In the 60s, the progressive forces were facing the government and the right wing, which were fighting for status quo. Today, the right wing is not with the government. It's against the government. It's fighting the government. You have the right fighting the government and the left fighting the government. The possibility of change becomes easier, even though the right is not fighting for the same change the left is fighting for. That's understood. But the fact that both of them are fighting against the government makes the possibility of change much easier. And we say, if you want to see the rising level of consciousness, look to the white right in this country. Where they disagree with busing, they burn buses. Where they disagree with abortion, they bomb clinics. Thus they themselves have come to demonstrate it, the use of violence as a potent force in arriving at a political objective. Everywhere the conditions for revolution are more ripe today than ever before. And in all of this is of course the rising consciousness of the people. The younger generation of Africans in this country, the youth, really believe that everything in America they have a right to. They believe it as a result of the struggles of the 60s. When they come up against a wall, there's going to be a serious explosion in this country. That explosion cannot be a repetition of the 60s. Indeed, history never repeats itself, even though bourgeois scholars never stop harping this song. <laughs> Nothing repeats itself, but people, however, can repeat their mistakes. Yes. And of course, once you repeat a mistake, it is more grave than the first time around. The lessons then must be clear. There is no question, and you must in no way lose faith in the masses of the people. It is they and they alone who make revolution, not their petty bourgeois spokesmen who betray them everywhere. And the conditions of the masses are worse today than they were in the 60s. These masses must have changed and will have changed by any means necessary. The final point then, the final point then, you must not become confused by the American capitalist system which holds up betrayers of the people's struggle as representatives of the people. In any army in the world, if you desert, you should get shot. It's a law. Certainly you must be shot. And if you volunteer for an army, you should be shot twice. <laughs> You volunteer for the people's army. The people go to fight. They're ready to fight. You say, I'm leaving. What do you mean you're leaving? <laughs> but if you will look at our struggle since the 60s, you will see nothing but betrayals by the petty bourgeois elements in our society. The African bourgeoisie is the most corrupt bourgeoisie in the world. In Africa... They seek luxury in the midst of mass suffering. There are more Mercedes in Africa than in any other continent in the world. In America, as soon as they arrive at a position based on this blood of the people, they snatch that position and run away from the people. But you must not think that they represent the people. They only represent their opportunistic self using the people every step of the way. So you must not be confused. It must be clear then, for the 60s, the class struggle in the African Revolution must be more ruthless and uncompromising than in any other revolution. Here then the masses must come without pity and without mercy to trample upon these reactionary pigs who after the people have gained struggle through their blood come to hand back the gains on a silver platter to the very enemy the people fought. This will come as a natural consequence. The people themselves are everywhere screaming that it's time for them to deal with these reactionary pigs. Even in America, they say, our leaders must be held accountable. They're only saying here that these people must be accountable to those who made it possible for them to get there. Thus, 
Not only is the revolution inevitable, but it is clarifying itself and it is qualifying itself. For the African masses everywhere, the clear poised position now for class struggle has become inevitable and irreversible. The petty bourgeoisie everywhere will be running for cover, but the masses will spare them not. Consequently, we, who have dedicated our lives to the people's struggle, we, who knowing that the people will always be free, we, understanding that we must make a contribution to qualify our struggle since the 60s, have been, dedicating, have been dedicating all our energies to only one task, the organization of the masses of our people. The organization of the masses of our people. We are not running for mayor. We're not running for president. No changes can come from the top down. We're not stupid. Changes can only come from the bottom up. The masses and the masses alone can make them. If you want to learn something from the 60s, the lesson is simple. Organize the masses of the people. Thank you.
mutual respect. Our nation at its best feeds the hungry. Our nation at its worst, at its worst, our nation will have partnership with South Africa. Free, 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 free.
night, my body lost his whole family. It's gonna take the man in me to conquer this insanity. It seems the rain will never let up. I try to keep my head up and still keep from getting wet up. You know it's funny when it rains, it pours. They got money for wars, but can't feed the poor. Said it ain't no hope for the youth, and the truth is, it ain't no hope for the future. And then they wonder why we crazy. I blame my mother.